0: Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of Geezer's Groove. Just want to start by thanking you all for your kind messages and support shown from the first one. Hopefully it helps a lot of people out too. As you're all aware, we're in a third national lockdown, so hopefully people are staying safe and staying positive and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. This episode is about a guy called Adam. He tells us about the death of his father in 2017 and his struggles with mental health afterwards. Here's Adam's story. How you doing, mate? Alright, Tom. All
1: right, Mason. How you doing, boys?
0: Right, mate. Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not
1: too bad. How's it over there? Yeah, it's good, mate. Yeah, we're um, we're not quite in such a severe lockdown as, as you guys. Sorry to make you jealous on that, but it's going all right. Yeah, we're uh, still working from home and trying to trying to get through this pandemic.
0: Yeah. What's the weather saying? Oh, it's nice and sunny. The isn't weather
1: it? is. Yeah, I'm looking outside now. It's probably about twenty degrees. It's <laughs> looking it's like looking him. good mate. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah it's our bloody uh, 1 2 degrees here. It's yeah. bloody freezing. <laughs> um how how are you find it out there? I was working over with him.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you boys, it's a challenge for sure it, as we are all personal trainers and trying to maintain a routine and you know maintain a steady steady book of business has been tough. Clients have been coming and going. It's it's not it's not easy. Um, I'm training people out of my, my living room. So we're, we're having to uh, roll the punches here and, and make some accommodations. And it's going okay. You know, we're probably running about 50% capacity to what I would usually be doing. So I have a little bit more time on my hands, um, which is also nice working on a few other projects right now. But for the most part, you know, it's not too bad.
0: Nice, mate. Nice. Yeah, you just got to make do with what it is in a minute, mate. Innit? Everyone's sort of in the same boat now. that. But... Just got to get on with it, and we're right, mate. I'm, yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: I'm
0: gonna sort of pass it all on to you, mate. So let's have it.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. And yeah, I just want to start by saying thank you for putting out the original podcast. Um, yeah, as you said in your intro, there it's it was uh it was inspiring for me, and, and I wanted to reach out to you even before you'd even posted the podcast up. I remember seeing you post about it, and um. I was immediately inspired and, and thought that I need to reach out to Tom and at least offer some content for the podcast, because if my story can help anyone else talk about their own mental health, then it'll be worth it for me. And it's not just about that, too. It's also about me telling my story and trying to, to feel a little bit better about it myself. So, yeah, I'll start with my story. And in order for you to really understand the, and the, uh, my experience and my journey with grief, I have to explain who my father was and how everything transpired. So my dad was an optician. He ran a small business in Shepperton called Ian Squire Optician. He was definitely a man of the community. He lived to serve Shepperton and the surrounding towns. He was always looking for uh, looking after his customers, giving them discounts so they could afford their new pair of glasses or going the extra mile to, to help, which I think was well appreciated uh, by the community in return. I think he was very appreciated. As well as running the business, my dad founded and operated a charity called Mission for Vision. Since the early 2000s, the charity was providing free eye care to multiple countries in Africa and Central America. It was very grassroots. He would transport containers full of supplies, such as glasses, testing equipment and medication to Africa. uh, He'd take a very small team and head to these very remote areas in countries like Uganda, Ghana, the Congo, Nigeria, Kenya, Mozambique, Burundi, and South Africa. So he'd made it his mission in life to really help others and dedicated so much of his own time and money to doing so. Uh, he went quietly about his business. He never looked for praise or recognition. He just wanted to help people and change the lives of those who otherwise could not see. He was also an innovator and saw firsthand the problems that these remote villages were facing and decided to do something about it. So. In these villages, if you have poor eyesight or perhaps you've gone blind through through needing cataract operations or, or even through disease, then you would sometimes have to walk hours, even days, just to get to your, your nearest eye doctor. So my dad saw this problem um, and he invented the world's first solar-powered lens cutting machine. This is a device that would cut a lens into the shape of any frame and, and could be altered in any way to fit that person's unique prescription. So uh, it, was a, it was a real one-of-a-kind invention that really fixed this problem that they had of having no power in these really remote areas and something that could be replicated again and again to solve, solve an issue. Um, he also created a pair of glasses that could cure any astigmatism. And in short, an astigmatism is where someone's eye is not completely round. It's slightly oval-shaped. Um, and because of this, you can't just give them a pair of standard glasses. They, they need lenses that to be precisely rotated, uh, to fit their prescription. And he basically created a pair of glasses that would accommodate this. Um, so it made it a lot easier to reproduce and, you know, fix people's, uh, poor vision. Um, so I felt like my dad, he had this great desire to continue learning his craft, even 20 years after becoming an optician, he was actually. Uh, I remember he was actually up for an award once as well for Great Britain's Optician of the Year, which is quite,
0: you know, really? quite nice
1: to show that he was, yeah, he was appreciated in the optics field as well as doing his charity work. You know, people saw the work he did and appreciated it on a professional level. You know,
0: yeah, I remember you telling me, like, obviously we've spoke about this like briefly already. I remember you saying that. it's like amazing, mate. Me and Mace were saying um, earlier on, like, it's amazing what he was doing and that, isn't it? Amazing what he done.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm so proud of him as
0: well. Incredibly
1: proud. Yeah, incredibly proud of him and and what he's done. And I think, as you can probably tell from me doing that sort of long intro on him, I I really want people to know how proud I am of him. And it's important to me um, that people understand. Uh, So really taking it back now to where the story begins, my father, he would usually do these big group missions to Africa each year. And then he'd also do one or two solo missions or solo trips, let's call them, um, depending on what he was working on. And it was actually during one of these solo trips, so he was just there by himself, uh, that he lost his life. It was in October, 2017, and he'd partnered with another foundation and was developing and teaching a curriculum to local aspiring opticians so they could learn to serve their own communities. When I heard the news, I was in London at the time, I was on my lunch break when I got a phone call. Bearing in mind this is a very normal day, it was a Friday. I think everyone was excited about the weekend, and uh, I know I was excited about playing football the next day. And I was on a walk down Kensington High Street when Tim, a friend from my football team, actually called me to tell to tell me that my dad had been kidnapped. Right? And when you hear that news, that kind of news from such a random source, you're immediately confused. I remember thinking this must be a mistake or if Tim is the first person to call me, then this can't be that serious, right? Surely I would have heard from a family member or something or, or someone from my dad's charity before hearing this, this kind of news from Tim, but he sounded very serious, very, very sincere in what he was saying. So I too began to take it very seriously. And then I remember feeling this immediate sense of, excuse me, a sense of embarrassment and anger that, I hadn't known this information before him, you know that I was just finding this out now when other people had already known, yeah, you know. I yeah. So as you can uh, as you can imagine, I was looking for answers. I was desperate to find out what was going on. Um, why this information taken so long to get to me? And Tim had told me that he found out through a church newsletter that was written by the pastor of my dad's church, and I remember thinking how could this man write a public newsletter and send it out to a bunch of strangers before his own children have even heard this news? How insensitive could this guy be? So I called him and I I called the pastor and I I asked what was going on. And of course he, he didn't know that I was unaware of the situation. He'd assumed that we'd heard it uh, through my dad's wife as he knew that she was aware of the situation. So Knowing that my dad's wife knew, I called my dad's business where she worked and tried to get in touch with her. The receptionist picked up the phone and rather awkwardly told me that my stepmom didn't want to talk to me. I asked why. I I have some que- very important questions. Like, Is she there? And she responded saying, "Yes, she's here, but she doesn't want to talk to you right now." <laughs> and uh, at this point, I probably should add in that I was never really that close with my dad's second wife and. Um, You know this kind of behavior. It it was still very surprising to me, but I guess it wasn't completely unexpected that she wouldn't be so willing to talk to me. But when it's something as serious as this, you know, you really, I really didn't expect it. Yeah, it's just is isn't it? At
0: the end of the day, you want, you want to know the answers. Has she ever, like, have you ever communicated to see why she never spoke to you about it or anything like that, or?
1: No, I, it was one of those things that I really, I really wondered and I asked the question. But she, you know, she continued to, to give my family and, and myself quite a bit of grief after, after this had happened. And it's definitely something for, you know, it's a different story. And It's probably not something that I would publicly want to speak about. But it, you know, it really didn't make it easy for us, um, the fact that she was withholding this information. You know, I, I felt like people were withholding information from me over something so serious and I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where someone it can be something trivial but if someone knows something and they don't want to tell you despite how desperately you want to know it it's it's just not a great feeling is it Yeah,
0: no definitely did you feel like she was trying to protect you
1: like to try and like not get you to worry or um I wish I could say yes, and yeah. but I don't. I don't think that was the case. In, no. um, that was the case, and and for you and the listeners and people to understand, I would have to probably go into you know more detail about about it. Which, um, as I said, it's probably not something for this this type of podcast. Yeah. But that was unfortunately that was the situation at the time. Um, so you know, I, after this, I I didn't know what else to do other than to try and take action myself, and I informed my brother and sister about the news and then called somewhere I thought I'd never have to call. And that was the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London. They too had no records of a kidnapping in Nigeria or or nothing under the name Ian Squire. So I completed a report over the phone and gave them what little information that I had. Later that day, I did find out that they'd actually already were working on the case, um, but had not updated yet in their system. So they didn't didn't, um, know when I, they were unaware of the situation when I called in. So still really not having any answers. I went back to work. Um, after all, I was expected back in the office. I didn't know what to say to my boss or if I should even tell him what had happened. I remember thinking, would he even believe me? You know, that's how ridiculous this whole scenario sounded in my head. You know, your dad's been kidnapped. Well, when does that happen? And it's just, it's just not real life. So, yeah.
0: You don't ever expect right, so, to hear them words. No. Never.
1: no. Absolutely not. And he's done these missions for the past 17 years, no, 15 years, let's say of his life and nothing like this had ever happened. And I'd never felt worried in the slightest. I, I trusted that, you know, he was, he would be okay. So it w- it was a very strange position to be in. And I told my boss and I stayed at work for the rest of the day. I didn't know what else to do. So I didn't do any work. I stayed there and I researched what to do in this situation and as you can probably imagine there's not a whole lot of information you know via google search um, as to what to do so i i literally stayed at work and then i i went home and for the rest of the evening i still had nothing i I got no sort of confirmation no call from my dad's wife nothing from the uh, foreign and commonwealth office I didn't know what was going on, whether it was going to be okay or not. So all I could do really was go through the motions. And I remember saying I had a football match the next day. I was definitely in shock and, you know, a little bit terrified that I hadn't heard anything and things were running through my head, the the various scenarios that I was playing out. I was at Matthew Arnold school and I was captaining the side. It was a very strange position to, to be in having to be loud and to be a leader when no one knows what's going through your head at the time and we're also down on players I think a few of the boys were away and we didn't even have a a designated place to warm up it was all a little bit of a mess really so it was really a situation where someone needed to take charge and I tried I tried it for a few minutes but the whole time I was trying I just couldn't breathe and I felt like I was going to throw up so I think I was completely spacing out for seconds at a time. And at one point someone actually said to me, come on, Squire, you're supposed to be in charge here. Like what's going on? Something to that effect. And it was then that I realized mentally that I just, I wasn't there. Yeah. I had to go home. I had to go home. So I told the guy is helping uh, run the team. I told the guy that was helping run the team and he took the boys to one side to break the news to them that they were down another player. And I remember standing there watching from a distance and almost crying as I overheard what was being said. I was really realizing then that this was going to be the emotional and mental toll this was going to take on me was going to be pretty extreme. And just the fact that people knew something was wrong. I still didn't know if the boys knew what exactly had happened, but it didn't really matter. At that moment in time that the fact that they knew that something was wrong was enough for me to want to get out of there and to get as far away from that place as possible
0: yeah that's understandable mate how would you want people to sort of react to that though like say if they found out how would you want them to approach you or
1: and it's very that's a very difficult question to answer because i i think still i nothing that they could have said would have made me feel better at that moment in time it was still so fresh in the memory and Looking back on it, I didn't even know if they knew what was, what had happened. But I think having them approach you and say something along the lines of "I don't know what's going on, but I want you to know that I'm I'm here for you," or or just "It's okay," like "I hope everything's fine." If they can, which to um, to be fair, a couple of the boys did do that, and they came up to me and they were like, "I hope you know," they they their demeanor completely changed from from. You know, playful, taking the piss, being what, you know, what's going on, Squire? Like, you're not doing a very good job here. To, oh, I realize something's wrong now. And I'm sorry. Um, go take care of yourself. So that, you know, that happened. And I think that was really good at that moment in time and really important for me to feel like I could now walk away from it, at least knowing a few of the boys understood and respected yeah. how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. That's you good. know. That's it's, fine. Oh, God, mate. Yeah, it's, it's a very common thing with men, isn't it? That we don't want to show any kind of weakness, and one of our biggest fears is is crying in public or feeling emotional about anything, no matter how serious it is.
0: Yeah, especially in like a in sort of situation, you don't like if you're crying. You that well, we know all of us know ourselves. Like in that situation, it's very like lad. Yeah, it's a very lad sort of group, isn't it? So. Um, yeah, especially being vulnerable in that sort of environment, it's it's a tough one, isn't it? That's why you got to be like careful with not like. Um, I remember when I was playing football at training, someone said, "Oh, everything's all right at home, but taking a piss, trying to be funny." And I was like, "No, it's not really cause, like it's that sort of situation. Don't know what's going on in people's life, so you shouldn't be saying stuff like that." Or yeah, absolutely.
1: But, um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, really
0: difficult one. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but when you say stuff like that it it doesn't it leads to a poor response from from you and you and you as you were saying in your previous podcast like it can lead you to blow up and then it's a really difficult position to be in to be in. So I, I guess it's it's more about if you if you see that someone is, is not doing well and they're acting out of character, try your best not to take the piss like that and actually ask awesome. them, is everything okay? Like I've noticed that you're you're re- you're acting differently and that will of course it's on the person who's going through the having a tough time to um to react and to try and talk to people about it and not have this blow up but also at the same time the person who makes that initial comment taking the piss if they you know if they if they weren't to have done that then you would avoid you would avoid a blow up for sure
0: yeah
1: yeah definitely yeah so basically yeah going back to the the story i I went home and it wasn't long before the worst had been confirmed. And I'd actually heard the official news that my my dad had been kidnapped. The reports came out of the compound where he was staying in Nigeria that he and three other people were taken in the middle of the night. Um, That was all we had. That was the information. There wasn't much more than that at that moment in time. So once we knew this was really happening, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the British government, got involved, and they invited us to their headquarters in London. I remember it being a really surreal experience. We had to go through this airport-like security to get into the building, and once inside, they sit you down in a waiting room, um, and you wait. Your agent, the person that you're working with, that you've only communicated up to this point via emails and phone calls, but you're waiting for him to come and get you. Uh, and to take you into the main building so we we go into the main building and we go straight into the lift and I remember having this hot cup of coffee in my hand and this just shows how out of it and in shock I was at that time uh, because I we were riding up the the lift and I just dropped this entire cup of coffee all down my arm and all over the floor and it's one of those things I guess you can look back on and kind of laugh at now but I remember feeling terrible at the time here I am in one of London's high-security buildings, making a giant mess, um, and I, I just was so embarrassed. And I guess, again, that was another point where I realised that I, I wasn't myself yeah. at that point. And uh, we go up to the correct floor, and you know, they shut the lift down and they get someone to come in and clean it. And I'm apologising about the mess I've just made and just feeling awful. So. We go into the conference room and we talk about what happens in a situation like this. And I got all those answers that I was trying to, trying to Google previously. And it turns out that this kind of thing actually happens more than we think. You may, in fact, you don't really ever hear about it in the news. It's very rare that you hear about something like this happening, but it is going on. And the government just do a, a good job at either resolving the issue and resolving the situation. Um, or just kind of keeping it under the radar. Um, so I remember being told actually that in in almost in every case that the it doesn't you know it doesn't end up bad you know the I think the agent threw a statistic or threw a number at me like 99% of the time when a British citizen or or anyone is kidnapped in this kind of situation that they're going to be okay and they'll be fine and I think that kind of that information definitely filled me with confidence at the time and i thought he was going to be okay i remember leaving that meeting feeling reassured that he was going to be fine uh, seeing as my dad was taking with three other people we also had to go meet with their families um, we met around a very large table to discuss a ransom package for the kidnappers and i think at this point i remember feeling very let down by the british government that there was no special assistance for scenarios like this. And it was down to the families to come up with what could be tens of thousands of pounds, sometimes even millions, you know, by themselves. I knew that the no negotiation with terrorist policy was necessary to prevent future kidnappings becoming more frequent. Yet at that point, you still can't help but feel let down and alone in that situation. Like someone with all of this, all of this huge resources could, easily help you out yeah. yet they were choosing not to
0: yeah it's crazy isn't it? like it's a hard one again isn't it like how did you react like obviously did you take it on the chin or was you
1: well, yeah like... i think you could only you can only take it on the chin at that point there's no there's no arguing with the, the foreign and commonwealth there's no arguing with the people working there it, it's not going to do you any good you know you've got to you've got to come up with uh, a resolution between your family and yourself and you got to stay strong at that moment in time. So it led to a very difficult conversation around the table. Um, I won't go too much into it, but it definitely was a really difficult conversation to have when you're, you're trying to put a price tag on the freedom and the safety of a loved one. Yeah. I mean, can you ever imagine having to do that in your life?
0: Mate, yeah, unthinkable,
1: is it, yeah. And that, yet yeah, that was the situation we found ourselves in. So it was all very surreal. That whole experience going into that building um, and, and going through that was really uh, something I've never experienced before, that's for sure, and, and something I hope to never experience ever, you know, ever again. So that was that. Um, after the meeting, you know, a few days had passed, and we hadn't heard anything from the kidnappers, no ransom demands, no. Uh, communications to say that he was still alive and this was worrying. This was worrying for me. And it was actually a little bit concerning to the government too, as they had said this was unusual behavior. Usually kidnappers will try to make contact as soon as possible to lessen the chance of being caught. But we'd still heard nothing and, and they'd heard nothing. So that was the news after a couple of days. And despite hearing this, I remember still feeling confident that he was going to be okay. That I don't know if this is now just denial setting in that, you know, this can't happen. This can't be happening to me. And he's going to be okay. You just keep telling yourself that he's going to be fine. Um, or it was just that original reassurance from, from the the government that this kind of thing never really ends up bad. And, you know, it's very rare that you ended with a situation where someone loses their life. So I remained pretty positive at that point. And then it was after a a couple more days, actually thinking back in this, at at this, I had condensed weeks down to a couple days in my, in my mind. I thought we'd done, we were doing these nightly phone calls with the the government for a few days. Um, but it was actually a couple weeks where we were just getting no answers. Um, and we'd have the same call every evening where they had no information to give us and we were just waiting and waiting and waiting to hear something. And I remember at that point, now thinking back, I was really starting to lose hope each day that he was going to be okay, or, or at least something was wrong. You know, you don't know quite what was wrong, but I started to feel at that point that there has to be a reason why we've heard nothing. And it's been two weeks now. Um, so, after about two weeks of just receiving no information, we we did get something, and the news was that a photograph had surfaced. The photograph had featured three of the people that, my, uh, that were kidnapped with my father, but it didn't include my dad. Um, we were all instructed to meet back at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to discuss the photo and what it could mean. I remember being told repeatedly that this doesn't mean anything, or we don't know anything for sure, which was... Of course true but it really didn't help in that situation being told that it doesn't help prevent you from asking the question why like why is my dad not in this photo we can see that three other people are safe and well and at least they look okay yet my dad wasn't there so that was uh that was the news at the time and you know that's all we had that's all we had at that point i remember How going did home you, and still, what was
0: your first initial thought when you saw that photo of the, the the three other people that was kidnapped? Was it quite negative? Was you not in a good frame of mind there
1: I think again I, going back to um what i just what I was saying about um being in denial I think I was in denial about it because i I remember thinking this can't be you know this isn't a bad thing. I remember saying, oh, they just you know." And there was all of this confusion about how the photograph had surfaced in the first place. I remember the government saying that we can't tell you how we got this picture. We like, we, it's top secret. We can't tell you. And I remember again, this is that feeling of someone withholding information from you that is so important and you just, yeah, you're left without that information. And, all you can do is trust in that situation and you all you can do is trust that they they have your best interest at heart and that and they're doing the right thing for you and i guess that's kind of like your situation with the surgeon and with the doctor right all you can do is trust that they're they're doing their job correctly
0: yeah exactly yeah
1: and i remember my yeah going back to what your your question and i remember still feeling pretty positive i think that was just what what i was trying to do at that time i was trying to stay positive And I was listening to them say it doesn't mean anything and it doesn't prove anything. So I believed that. And I, I went home and continued to go through the motions. I don't, it wasn't long after that, that we had, you know, we'd had heard the, you know, what will now be, and will always be the hardest part of this story to relive. But I remember being at my, my mother's house, alone there was no one else there when I got the phone call from my uncle my dad's brother um been living this nightmare for weeks now and all of a sudden to be to receive this phone call and to be told what you had previously told yourself was not possible and had believed not to be possible and that was that my dad had been murdered and, you know my dad was dead um it sounds cliche and like something from a dramatic movie but I just fell to the ground. I had no strength left in my legs and I cried on the kitchen floor. There was nothing, there was no one home. So I stayed there and I remember staying right there and crying for another 30 minutes or so. I spoke with my brother and sister after that and then called my fiance, who was my wife now, but my fiance at the time, who was fast asleep in America due to the time difference. I remember debating calling her for a good 20 minutes before I, I couldn't bring myself to share this news with her, you know, part of me didn't want her to feel anywhere remotely close to how I was feeling. Um, and then I think another part of me just wanted to to let her sleep, uh, due to just the time difference and how early in the morning it was for her. But eventually I did call her and, you know, I had a, a very hard conversation with her on the phone call on the, on the phone and she was incredible and booked a flight to come out and stay with me and to be with me the very next day.
0: Yeah. That's, that's amazing, yeah. mate. Like, that's what you need, isn't it? Support straight away and that. Um, but, like, like you going back up to the phone call, how, how do you even, like, say that in a phone call? It's, it's hard to even, like, think about what, what you're going to say and that, isn't it? It's, oh, must be yeah so and that's, cool, mate.
1: Well, I, yeah. yeah, and I remember thinking my uncle having to make that phone call to his nieces and nephews and how, and probably, you know, a bunch of other people too, and how hard it must've been for him, his brother, the man he grew up with and, you know, was so close to for for so much of his life. And now he has to break this news to other people that are so close to him. And again, that was news that I was then having to break to someone that I love. And that's always a very hard Position to be in when you're having to break this news, knowing the effect it's going to have on them, as well as the effect it's already having on you.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we, you know, she booked this flight, and this is now. I didn't mention this before, but this is now the second time she's she's flown over from between LA and London to be with me to support me throughout this. So you know, a very quick mention to to that and how crucial and important she was to me during that time um, you know, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got through it without her. And that's not an understatement as I would have, I don't know how I would have done it and, and made it through that incredibly difficult time. Um, uh, and you know, that it wasn't, it was only going to get worse from that point. So I was so grateful that she, she was there and she came out to spend time to be with me. And, uh, yeah, once, once it was confirmed that he was dead, there was no real, this is what the, the story and the journey of grief kind of starts. And, and my experience with it, and there was the harsh reality of it, was that there was no time for me to grieve properly, due to the circumstances of the story. The story, it was picked up by the media, and the last thing that you want in this in this circumstance is for the sudden, unjust death of your father, being posted on the news and in papers. And we were instructed by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to write a family statement to go out to the media, asking for them to respect our privacy. And it's crazy to think that you even have to do that. You have to ask for this, this respect when something so terrible has happened to you. But that was just the, the nature of the situation. And we had newspapers and the, the national news trying to report the story of my dad being kidnapped and, and dying in, in a different country. Don't want to read um, it, That's
0: the thing. It's, it's crazy, and it like It's bad enough living it already you don't need that as well do you You don't, don't need a stranger you don't need it paraded everywhere no, that's, no. yeah that's crazy mate
1: yeah i will say the one thing that the media statement did allow us to do and being instructed to that we had to write this um it did allow us to to share a few words without having to worry about you know receiving a response to that statement and I took it upon myself to write the media statement. I'd been incredibly close with my dad and I felt a responsibility that the statement must reflect and represent him as well as possible. So my fiance and I drove to the Cricketers, which is a pub in Cobham. And it was a favorite pub of my, you know, we had, it had sentimental value to us. It was a favorite pub of my my dad and ours. When we were growing up, we used to go on bike rides to the pub all the way from Shepparton to Cobham. And, play football the, on the field. It was a real special place to us. So we drove out there and, in the evening and sat down in the corner of the pub, ordered a, a couple of drinks. And we, uh, I wrote this, this statement for the media. It was something that I was very proud of. I was very proud of this statement. It was the first chance that I had to make sure he was remembered correctly and that people knew what he had accomplished. And I think this became a big part of how I dealt with the loss and that was throwing myself into making sure he was remembered correctly. I planning a memorial service for him. We had uh, hundreds and hundreds of letters and flowers, and um, you know, t- given to or placed outside my dad's shop in Shepperton. And the impact that his life had had on all these people was was something really to be proud of. And, and at that point, after reading all of these letters and I knew I knew that it was so important to host a large memorial service and something that would really honour his memory and something that he would be proud of, or something that would do him, you know, that would do him justice. So that's what I did. That's what I did. I, I threw myself into planning a memorial service for him. I started a Just Giving page, which very quickly raised about ten thousand pounds to go towards yeah. his charity, nice. Mission for Vision. Yes.
0: and going back to like all the letters and the flowers like you say it just it it makes you proud doesn't it to uh, like like you say that your dad had such an influence on people and stuff like that so
1: yeah absolutely and I was already really proud of him for the work he did in Africa and but putting that aside and and, you know putting all of that aside the impact he had on everyday people like you and I and the local community to see that was really that was you know it was a really heartwarming feeling it it made me feel so great and it was a a slight you know it was one good good thing to come with this was seeing the impact that he had on people and how they wanted to show their respects and send flowers and and letters and uh, you know, that it's was like a really bit
0: of comfort in it isn't
1: it seeing that. that yeah exactly a little bit of comfort a little bit of comfort in that and that we actually had a, a bench made for him so there's a, there's a bench in honor of my dad down in Shefton, right by the River Thames it's right next to Thames Court which is you know again a place where he and I had a few drinks and we would I remember actually a, a story uh just the the same year that he passed away and I was going for a drink I was going to Thames Court for a drink and I uh I didn't really I can't remember why I was going there, but I was just, I was going there by myself and I pulled up past my dad's shop and just out of the blue, I said, Hey, do you want to come for a drink with me? And he was really busy that evening. He was doing, he had, he had plans. I was asking him last minute. So he said he couldn't, he couldn't make it. And I was like, of course, that's fine. I'm, I'm still going to go and just have a drink. I I must've just been coming home from work or something. And, and I went there and had a drink and it, it was really, great uh it was a great moment for me because out of nowhere my dad disappears and he shows up and he'd blown all of his plans off just to uh just to come and sit and have a, an evening with me so and that's something that you know the bench now there being right next to the, the pub and um, knowing that we shared that experience the year, you know, the same year that he passed away is really special. Yeah, so, it's
0: a nice touch, mate. You know, it? it's a not not really nice memory to yeah, have. Always remember that. You?
1: Yeah, yeah. So if anyone is, you know, if anyone is in uh, Shefton, I encourage them to to go and take a seat on that bench, right outside Thames Court, and you know, think about your own loved ones. Take an opportunity to think about perhaps your dad, and um, you know, just think about anyone else that might need some kind of some kind of help right now Some support So Yeah I encourage that to, If you ever want to go check it out It's right there next to Next to Thames Court
0: Yeah we definitely will mate we definitely yeah, will like, And that's like you're happy yeah. So when you like, When you do come back to England And stuff like that Like you've always got that place Where you remember Your dad for instance And like It's a nice It's a nice place to go isn't it yeah. And just reflect And Yeah it's nice mate Yeah lives on as well like a stranger walking past as your dad's name it's nice for them to know who he is and stuff like that so
1: yeah again that go, it's all about making sure he's remembered and that that is the important thing for me and it definitely it was at that time of of the memorial service so taking it back to that the time well I guess the time just before the memorial service when we were planning it um, it was the build up was not an enjoyable time for me I remember still receiving messages and emails from media outlets, requesting an interview. And I remember entertaining the idea of talking to someone, but only after they had led with the comment that it would really help me raise money for the charity. And that was something that was so incredibly important to me at the time that I just irresponsibly put aside all of my, the fact that I hadn't had any time to grief about it, the fact that I hadn't talked about it to anyone yet. And I was willing to talk, again, irresponsibly willing to talk to the newspaper, a newspaper about my experience. And it's something that I remember they were asking me questions and it didn't take long. It took maybe two or three questions before I realized that they were just using me for a a good story. And they were using me to get this story out there. And they led with something that they knew was important to me in terms of raising money for my dad. And they used that to to bring me in and to lure me into the to having a conversation with them. So I very quickly told them that they they couldn't publish anything. And a little bit more dramatic than that I had to very I had to make sure. Yeah, imagine I had to make sure kind of like I mean I had to I had to make sure that they weren't gonna post it. So and I remember feeling after that incredibly frustrated with myself and annoyed with myself and embarrassed, but I'd, I'd done this and I'd entertain the idea of, I, you know, I didn't, my name was about to be in the newspapers and we were the, the family. were trying to avoid that exact thing from happening. We were trying to avoid none of my family know about this, by the way. So this is you know yeah. they are listening to this I'm, But at I'm the sorry same time <laughs> at the same time you had good
0: intentions. You like you say you, was, to trying raise to, money, yeah, yeah. you was trying to raise money for your dad's charity. So mate, I don't blame I wouldn't blame you at all for wanting to do something like that. And you told them where to go yeah. after three questions. It <laughs> weren't like you Yeah, it weren't like you on, ent- it? entertained it. So
1: Yeah, well thanks so no, I appreciate that. It it was of course the the intention I had was only to to raise money it wasn't to create a a story for people I didn't want anyone to personally I still didn't want anyone to really talk about it or know about it at that point but people were finding out about it through the news and through the media so I guess my uh, approach was that well people have already found out about it and people are already talking about it so what difference does it make but I did very as I said three questions and very quickly realized this was a mistake and thankfully it wasn't published and there was nothing out there and you know we at least um it didn't lead to anything else afterwards and our privacy was was continued to be respected at least a little bit after that um yeah so that was uh i remember just staying at work for about three or four hours after i'd had that phone call and just being so frustrated and annoyed with myself um but I, I wasn't wasn't ready to answer those questions. And yeah, but uh, moving on, I was still I was still planning the memorial service. And I wanted to show my father's life in a little more detail. So I created a video for him for the service. And the video took me, you know, I'm not a videographer. I'm not I'm not incredibly uh, talented when it comes to that kind of thing. So I actually asked one of my friends, Ben Stone who uh, was of great help to me at that time, he was really there for me. And he reached out to a friend of his who was a graphic designer to create visual effects and visuals for my video to give it a real professional look. And looking back now, that video is something that I'm really proud of and I'm extremely happy to have created. It's something that I can now look back on and rewatch. It's something that my family can now look back on and rewatch. So I'm really, I'm really happy that I did that and grateful for, the support and the help that I got during that process and thanks to Ben as well for for really helping me out during that time um so the video we created the video and you know I was very happy with it It had a great representation of my dad and luckily my dad had documented a lot of uh what he was doing in Africa so there was a lot of clips that I could use to really bring his um his life to life basically bring his life to life in, in video and, and show everyone what, what he was doing, what he spent his whole life achieving and, and accomplishing. So that was the, the build up to the service and the service itself was a really hard experience and you guys have been through it as well. So you know a funeral and uh, it, it's, not, it's not a fun experience no, at, at the same time, yeah. And I remember preparing a speech that took me days to write Again, it was with the help of my fiance. Um, she, I wrote about three full pages worth and rehearsed it maybe 50 times before I actually said the speech. The last thing I wanted to do was not be able to finish or painfully stutter my way through it. So I remember, um, I remember it was going pretty well actually. The speech was going well except for the last paragraph, and I couldn't keep it together. I got really emotional, and it probably took me about three times as long as any other paragraph just to just to finish and just to get it out there. But once I did finish it and once I'd completed my speech, the, the crowd and there were, you know, a few hundred people crammed into this small space. But the applause that I got from the crowd was unlike anything else that I've ever experienced.
0: Yeah, you like, know, well, you know, must, uh, we spoke about this as well, didn't we, briefly, that I've I done a eulogy for my dad's funeral, and um, like it's probably the proudest thing, my most proudest thing. Um, yeah, it's not a better feeling, I don't think. It takes a lot, because you could just look at one person, and then they say, It's well, It's, it's yeah. probably the proudest, but the hardest thing I've ever done as well.
1: Yeah, and I, I completely agree to that, uh, agree with that, and... I'm sure anyone else that's had to do it would agree also. It was, it was the hardest thing in my life and to be applauded and to have people show a level of appreciation like that after doing, doing it was, um, again, it was such a great feeling. It made it all worth it. It made, it made the pain that I went through writing this speech out and rehearsing it. And it made it worth it, getting that level of support and appreciation from from um, the crowd and, and people that really cared and they really cared about my dad. And also in the crowd, I want to also quickly shout out whilst we talk about mental health and support and the importance that your friends play, uh, play in, in, you know, getting through something like this. And my boys, my, my best mates, they were there in the crowd. Uh, I could see, I could see all of them. And that was so incredibly important to me. And I want to touch a little bit about that and how, important as i said important it is to show your support to someone um when you know they're going through a tough time and it's it's definitely incredibly important to reach out to someone immediately after something like this has happened it's that is crucial but also what is more important and what i feel is more important is to follow up with that person it can be weeks later it can be months later but the follow-up will often come at a time when they need it the most, when they feel like everyone has forgotten about them and they've yeah. forgotten about their story. So what my boys did and what was really, I'm really grateful for was that they followed up. They weren't just at the funeral. They weren't just there showing their support, but weeks later they were messaging me. Months later, even years later now, they're still checking in with me on, on WhatsApp and making sure I'm doing okay. So I think if anyone, out, if anyone knows someone who's going through something, don't think just because you reached out to them and they didn't respond to you immediately or you know soon after their traumatic event had happened it doesn't mean that they don't need your support and they don't want your support so reach out to them again take that time take a little bit of time weeks months months whenever it is to actually reach out to them because you don't know how much they might need it at that moment in time it means a lot don't
0: it even if you just see a text like hope you're okay mate yeah it means it means a lot don't it? It, it it makes you think they 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 care, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it it goes as I was saying earlier. Like one of the biggest fears is that people forget about your dad, right? And you feel the same way? Like, 100%, yeah, hundred percent. I'm terrified that he's just going to be forgotten about, and you know, people are going on with their life just as if it had never happened. And of course, people are going to go on with their life, and you wouldn't want them not to but you always want to know that people are remembering your dad and what he did. So just getting, or even remembering what you went through and what you're still going through. So you're completely right. Just getting a little text to say, are you okay? Can sometimes make, make the whole difference.
0: Make your day sometimes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: what happened um, at the um, funeral then? Did life sort of go on for you? Like that's work
1: or? Yeah. So yeah, good question. I, I, I was uh, actually, the funny funny thing was that I was set to move to America that same month, actually the month before the funeral. And I was supposed to pick my whole life up and move to this new country, uh, which I had to delay for obvious reasons. Aliena was now, my, my wife now was flying out for the third time to be with me during the funeral and, and for a little bit of time after, after the funeral too. She used all of her time off, uh, exhausted all her time off from work, and spent every minute that she could with me. So again, another shout out just to her. And that was going to be another question of mine.
0: Did your wife come to the funeral? Because uh, obviously, like with the circumstances, her in America, it's very difficult at times, isn't it? But uh, it's amazing that she did, and she was able to be there for you, mate. That means a lot as well, don't it?
1: Yeah, it really does. <laughs> Once so, yeah, again, like I, she really allowed me to to do the things that I that was so important to me if i if i wasn't able to write that speech if i weren't able to write the media statement then i would feel like i missed out on something and and i would regret it you know i'd have this feeling of regret but because of her i was able and i had the strength to do those things so yeah she made it out to the funeral and yeah it wasn't a question to her it wasn't a question whether she she i don't think she even had any time off left from work but she just probably took unpaid leave and was like, I'm out of here. I need to go support my, my, my partner, my fiance. So yeah, yeah. so she made it out to the funeral. And, you know, my dad loved Eliana. I remember telling, uh, telling my dad when I was going to marry her, I remember the moment now that it's back in 2016, that I was going to ask her to be my wife. And he was so full of joy in that moment and I've never seen him be so proud of me after just telling him and it's certainly something that I wish out of all the events in my life I wish he could have been at my my wedding yeah my wedding day and I know you guys are gonna you guys said it in your podcast too and you're gonna you're gonna feel the same way when you guys get married and you know it's not an easy thing it's absolutely not an easy thing getting married and, and not having, not having him there. But yeah, but we, I, 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 definitely during the wedding going a little off track here, but during the wedding, I, I, I mentioned him and I, I, at least for me made him a part of it, which was really important to me.
0: Yeah. So And at least a nice yeah. memory is that he, he proud of yeah. And he, and time. he loves your wife. Like he would have been yeah. more than happy to be at the wedding. Like, you know, you would have loved to have been there. So that's something yeah. you can take with you as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, certainly. And yeah, going going back to the story we I think uh so yeah, Mason, you're asking what happened next. And I was supposed to move to America. I I'd actually already quit my job at that point. So I I went ahead with it and decided to to still move and to still go to America. Uh I waited a little bit of time, obviously. Um, but I'd had all these plans put in place and I needed to, I needed to be with my fiance. It was really important for me. And we we were doing long distance and we've been doing long distance for four years at that point, a long time (laughs) between London and LA and eight hour time difference, sixteen, six thousand 6,000 miles. It wasn't easy. So when you need support the most, you need to be with the person that can give you the most support. So. I had to, I, it was no question for me whether I was still going to go or not. And I made my mind up that I was going to fly to America. So it was New Year's, it was New Year's Eve of 2017. So it was about to become 2018 that I boarded a plane to LA with as much, as many possessions as I could fit in two suitcases and a carry on. And it was on the plane actually has a really funny story and i remember telling you guys previously but uh on the plane i was sat next to this young spanish girl who had just lost her dad also and she was returning from his funeral and i thought to myself this must be a sign what are the chances you know were we destined to sit together or, or like what like what was going on here it was um a real a real strange thing but after. She got incredibly drunk, um, which we know, I can completely understand. She was going through a really rough time and she passed out on my shoulder. I kind of chalked it more down to coincidence that she was on that flight next to me. Um, I didn't actually tell her the whole time that I was going through exactly the same thing as her. And I guess that was me still not wanting to talk about it. Um, You know, also, I I was kind of scared that, you know, I don't know why I was scared but I was scared that she wouldn't believe me and it was too what are the chances you know it was too uh unlikely that there would be two people sat together going through the exact same thing but I also knew that this was a very rare occasion where someone actually knew how she felt and exactly what she was going through at that moment in time so I made the most of it and I sat with her and I I talked I talked with her for hours whilst we would, you know, watch, she was drinking and just tried my best to make her feel better. And, you know, eventually after her eighth glass of champagne, she passed out and fell on, her head on my shoulder and she just slept for the remainder of the flight. And it was a real, you know, funny but nice story and a very strange thing to happen in my first, my journey to America where I was supposed to, you know, be starting this whole new chapter in my life.
0: Like we said, like you said before, we mentioned it um, before. Um, it's a really small world, isn't it? Like when something like that is is happening, and like yeah, as exactly. well, going back to you not wanting to say anything—that's a typical sort of bloke thing, isn't it? Not wanting to yeah. talk about it.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and it it really came up time and time again afterwards. You know, just not wanting to talk about it and to bottling it up and to holding it in. And uh, it definitely became it, it, it became a really tough year for me. The whole of 2018 was a really hard year. Everything had happened so quickly. Um, and then all of a sudden I find myself completely removed from the situation. You know, I'm no longer with my family. I'm no longer with my friends. I'm in a new country. I'm in this whole strange new place. And... I'm alone again. You know, I'm in that, I have my fiance with me, but there's only, you know, there's only so much I can ask of her to support me. And I go back to that feeling of just being completely alone again. And in hindsight, it really wasn't a good place to be when you, when you've gone through so much, so quickly, so much trauma over such a small space of time, and then you completely remove yourself from that situation and are expected to be completely okay and then completely normal and to get on with your life. It's not a, it's not a, a recipe for, for success and a recipe for getting, for getting over this. So basically I, I remember just that's when I first realized that I was depressed and I was beginning this battle with depression for the whole of what would be the whole of 20 2018.
0: Yeah, it's a, on its own, that move on its own it's a is big move, it's a, big, it's a big change and is, it would be very hard, wouldn't it, to go um, family at home, friends at home, but just after your dad as well, It's it, it just makes it a hundred times harder, don't it? And you're leaving, your brother and sister are going through the same thing, so you sort of want to be there for them and your mum and stuff like you, that. So. Even though your wife was there and knows what's happening, it's hard, it's hard for her to sort of relate as what your family would at times and stuff. It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard one.
1: Yeah, it really... uh, I said it before and, you know, it's it's, um, it's another cliche, but I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. I really had nowhere to go. On one hand, I, I needed to be here and I wanted to be with my wife. On the other hand, the support and my family were in a completely other country. So that's when that's when the, the depression started and I spent a whole year not getting over this and not dealing with it. How, not how I should have, because there isn't, there isn't a one way of how, you know, you should deal with it. There isn't an answer for everyone. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's no one method fixes all to no. this, yep. to, depre- to depression and to mental health. We know that, but you know, I, this definitely wasn't the right, place for me to be in terms of getting better so you know I, I really lost all sense of direction I moved out there and I I hadn't recovered in the slightest I did not know what I was doing with my life and to make matters worse in that scenario I wasn't actually allowed I wasn't able to go home and I wasn't able to see my family and I know I I'm brought this up again in our previous conversation and Mason asked the question did I miss home and of course the answer is yes I I ideally missed home but I couldn't leave the country I wasn't allowed to leave the country I was immigrating and I was currently in the process of applying for a green card and when you're applying for a green card and you're trying to immigrate to the United States of America they they almost uh, I don't want to say hold you hostage but they 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 keep you there in that country You're not allowed to leave. You're not allowed to go anywhere. So I was, uh, I was there. I wasn't allowed to go back to the UK. Um, And if I did go back to the UK and if I decided at one point it was all too much and I had to go see my family, I would have forfeited my application and we would have to start all over again. And it would have just delayed the process of being able to be with my wife. So that was uh, another kind of, you know, the whole world's against me at that point. I'm feeling like, what, what can I, what am I, you know, what can I do?
0: Do you feel like, um, obviously the plan was always to go to America anyway, but do you think you wasn't, but do you think you was sort of running away from it here to try and, um, I don't know how to word it, like make you happier. Do you think that would, that was going to make you happier and sort of, do, do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think, you're, I think you got, I think that's right. I think um, there's definitely something to that. I was, again, being a typical bloke and trying not to, not to talk about it and not to think about it. And by moving away, I didn't have to do that. I was now surrounded by people that had no idea what was going on. Yeah, they exactly. didn't under- Yeah, so I think you're right. I think mentally that might have been me running away from the situation and uh, thinking that I would be able to get over it and I'd be stronger than I actually was. Um, and I, I took, you know, I'd be fine moving to America and just trying to start a new life. But of course it was the complete opposite to that. And as I as I touched on earlier, yeah, it was, it was definitely not the right thing. It, It was still the right thing for me to do. I'm, I'm not saying that I regret doing it because I wouldn't be where I am today. Now. Um, with my wife living in, in this country and, and, you know, getting on with my life finally. But uh, at that time for my mental health, it definitely wasn't the best thing for me to be away from everyone and uh, thinking it was going to be okay.
0: Yeah. But I think we, everyone in the same situation can relate and will try and do anything to sort of take yourself out of that situation. Do you know what I mean? So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember just being, too overwhelmed to talk about it to anyone and almost it became the case that people not knowing became worse at that first i thought this is going to be great no one's going to know about it and i can get on with my life and i won't have to talk about it but then it became very quickly like i'm struggling i'm going through a really hard time here and no one has a fucking clue what's going on they don't know anything and that became much worse than people actually knowing
0: and you got to pretend, almost pretend that you're all right, haven't you? are alright have not you you got to put on this face that, and this act that you're all right and you're dealing with it all right.
1: Exactly. I had to put on that face and pretend like everything was good. And if I finally felt like I could talk, talk about it to someone, it all became too much because of the severity of my situation. You know, how, how many times are you going to tell, you know, it's just like you don't it's so hard to go up to someone and say one, it's one thing saying my dad's died, right? That's one thing. It's another thing. It's a whole other thing saying my dad was murdered yeah. and actually being open and honest about it and opening up all these feelings because you don't know how they're going to react. If I've, I would be scared of how that person is going to react to me telling them something so serious and so unexpected that it would completely put me off even telling them in the first place. And I would continue just to bottle it up again.
0: Yeah. It's very very hard to trust that person as well, don't you? To feel comfortable to uh, even say Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think as I said, this is now this is now the third time I'm telling this story to someone. There's only one other person that I've opened up to and told the story to, and he's a close friend of mine over here. Um so, you know, this is this is a big step for me. This is a big step to actually open up and, and tell people the story. But this is a platform now that I feel safe and that's because of you guys and it's also it's also a great platform to to talk about this kind of thing because i don't have to worry about you know the immediate response from someone someone is listening on the other side of a phone um or a computer or whatever it is and even if they are reacting a certain way i i don't have to worry about that and you know it doesn't play on my mind so
0: that's a good that's a good way to sort of round it off really isn't it um yeah, that's that's perfect, mate. To be fair, hits now on the head, really. I've got a question. Yeah. Um, what would you say to your like old self, like from two thousand and seventeen, like what you know now?
1: I would say that there's two things I'd say. And the first thing is that don't beat yourself up over how you're feeling about this. Don't feel like you should be feeling a certain way because. There is no one way that you should be feeling and you should deal with this and i kept telling myself that i shouldn't be upset about this and i shouldn't be i shouldn't be depressed and i shouldn't be like putting off doing other things in my life but by telling myself that i was only hurting myself even more so i'd say don't beat yourself up over how you're feeling about it allow yourself to feel a certain way and the second i'd say is and it goes to that whole year i spent in being depressed and bottling this up in 20 2018 and that is talk to someone about it you know talk to and that's the whole point of this podcast is is to open the start the conversation and to open a new a new way a new channel for someone to to talk to you know to talk about their own mental health issues and if only i talked about it for, sooner I would have perhaps got through my depression a little bit, you know, a little bit earlier in, in life. And um, that is definitely a big thing. You know, even talking to a therapist, I put off talking to a therapist <laughs> and to be completely honest, I I still haven't talked, I still haven't spoken to a therapist about it. So that is something that I'm looking to now do. Um, and I want to do my, for myself now. So that is the second thing. Talk to someone about it. Even if it isn't as hard as it is to open up, find that one person that you trust and be brave. It's a brave thing. You have to be brave, but talk to them about it because more than likely they will be willing to talk to you back and they will be willing to hear your problems and help you through it.
0: I don't know about you, mate, but like we ourselves, after doing our first podcast and saying, telling our story, it was like a, a weight was lifting up, lifted off our shoulders. Because we'd never ever spoken about it in depth like we explained and it was just like I don't know how, how, if you feel the same obviously you've spoken to someone about it before but like obviously we've we haven't spoken like this before have we? So how, how does it feel? Does it feel like a massive weight off your shoulders?
1: Yeah I will say that and we did a, a, a little practice run yesterday or we at least had a conversation yesterday about it and I will say after talking about it I felt a huge relief yeah, yeah. My, my chest had I might you know my chest had loosened I, I could breathe again it was like you know like I was yeah I, I absolutely felt that relief and the weight has been lifted off my shoulders so you know it, it it does happen talking about it really does help um help you feel better it pretty much immediately after too and I don't know I don't know honestly I don't know how after this, after this podcast is is released and it's out there for the public to listen to. I don't know how I'm going to feel after that. That's something that will be a new experience for me because I've never, you know, as I said, I've only ever told one other person about this and no one in America knows about this really. Yeah. Um, of course people know back at home because it was on the news and it was in the media and it was posted. I posted a couple of things on socials, but really not much. Um, so, you know, that's going to be a whole new experience, but I should imagine that it will be It'll be a good feeling, and it'll be again like a weight that's been lifted off my yeah. shoulders.
0: Yeah, definitely, mate. It's, it's, you should be proud of yourself, mate. Like we know, it's it's not the easiest thing to do, but yeah, you should definitely be proud of yourself, and your dad would be as well. Yeah, dad sounded like yeah an incredible, fellow. To be fair, like, stuff yeah, he sounded like an incredible bloke, mate. Like uh, you should definitely be proud of him. Um, you, I remember you mentioning yesterday about your little side project.
1: Yeah, so I guess a good way to finish to to round this out and to to finish the story is to talk about a few positives, right? You know, we went through the negatives and not the negatives, but we went through the struggles and and, um, my story with grief, but, you know, life does have a way of, of picking you back up. And there are a few things that I'm working on. There are a few silver linings. And first of all, I want to say that the relationship that losing my dad, um, the relationship between my brother um, that losing my dad has, had, uh, had changed has been a big thing for me. It's, it's My brother and I now have a better relationship. I'm not really expl- explaining it very well, but before, the, uh, you know, before it all happened, we weren't so close. And it, it really brought us together. I was really there for him, I feel, during the immediate, after, the immediate time after he passed away. And then since I moved out here and was removed from the situation, he was really there for me. And that really meant a lot to me. And, you know, I asked him, he was a, a part of my wedding. He was a groomsman at my wedding. And now I feel like I can just call him up and, and talk to him about anything. And we never really used to have that relationship. So one positive, and, you know, the same with my sister too. I, I, I always had a good relationship with my sister, but um, the same thing, you know, it's the same thing. Like, I feel like one positive to come out of this is that the relationship between my brother and I has really, has really grown. And I'm grateful for that.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah, and I thought you know I don't know if you guys I know you guys um, I've always been pretty close. You guys work together, but I'm sure you can speak about that you know too, and it's it, it has brought your family yeah. closer together.
0: Definitely, it's um, you know they're going through it, so you want to be there for that person, didn't you? So yeah, don't get me wrong, we still have our uh, we still have our brotherly bickers and that, but like most people, you but
1: it's just. If you're having
0: now. a down day or I was having a down
1: day, we'd always be there you know, for each other. Yeah, exactly. That, so. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to talk a little bit about the project that I have been, I've been uh, working on for the past sort of six months and will be working on throughout this 20, 2021. But uh, I'm starting a new business and it is a business in honor of my father. And I want to, we are developing and designing eyewear. In his name so we've got sunglasses and frames that we're going to sell on our website and proceeds that uh proceeds from from people buying the glasses will go directly to mission for vision charity his foundation the goal is to have for every pair of sunglasses that the customer buys or as someone buys a not just a pair of glasses but a eye test and an, an examination can can be uh, given to someone and a pair of glasses to go with it so they can see again and it's really taking it back to that sort of grassroots how it all started how my dad originally started this charity and that's going into the remote villages and providing this free eye care uh that they otherwise would definitely not you know not have access to so that's the project we're starting a new something new it's going to probably be available hopefully just before the summer of, of this year. And, yeah, as I said, proceeds will go to his charity and to continuing, continuing to honour honor him and his name.
0: Mate, that's amazing. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Like, same so, again, yeah. there's been so many um, times that I've said that he would be proud of you, but literally, mate, yeah. he'd be so proud of you for doing something like that. That's amazing, mate. Honestly, it'd tap my heart off to you to do
1: something like yeah, that. incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I really, no, I appreciate that. And it is a big thing for me. I, I now want to spend the rest of my life making him proud of of me and, uh, you know, honoring him and making sure he is remembered for all the great things that he accomplished and the, you know, the tens of thousands of people that he's helped in his lifetime and to continue that. So there, there can be tens of thousands more people that are helped. So, that is the goal, um, kind of like you in the, the Chisholm Cup. I and I was, I know I said before, but I really want to be a part of that next year or this year. Hopefully, you guys. <laughs> yeah, can get, fingers, uh, fingers
0: crossed we can get back can open make, this year, you mate. Made a linesman, if you want. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> i been demoted to, to linesman. Yeah. I'll, I'll even play
0: in goal. You need a goalkeeper. You know, I'll be playing. Nah, I'll mate, be you'll be, be playing. Just, uh, posh and Betts coming over from the states. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this really good centre back coming from America.
1: <laughs> back. I've been centre back was a while ago now. You know, I'm wor- you know worked my way up the field a little bit. I'm scoring goals. I was <laughs> golden boot uh, winner for Chefs humors, You know, two years in a row. <laughs>
0: um are you playing football out there or soccer shall we say
1: no don't for a sec right you know don't call it soccer i'm not giving into that And i want to say something on on uh before we end this podcast and that is i i really have tried not to take on any americanism (laughs) and to start speaking like an american so if i have please know that i have tried <laughs> and that I want nothing more than to not sound like an american person so um, but this, the, you know the, the, the sad thing is that there isn't that culture over here and there's no sunday league team that i can go join just around oh, the corner the so
0: and i have a scrap no
1: nah, it's really it's really hard to find a, a decent team to play for so You know, if I do play in that cup, I'm probably going to be absolute, you know, I'd be terrible. So, (laughs) maybe it's best I'd be a linesman.
0: (laughs) Nah, mate, like I say, hopefully, fingers crossed, COVID buggers off and we can do it. And, uh, mate, if you're available, if you're up for coming back, obviously you'll want to come back and see family anyway. But, mate, if you're over, you're more than welcome to come and play. And, literally, even if we we pair charities together or something like that, try and raise money for your dad's charity as well. We'll, we'll definitely do something. Do yeah, you know great. what I mean? So,
1: Yeah, that's great. I I do a annual golf tournament um, called the Squire Cup and it's a play on the Ryder Cup, but it's, uh it's to raise money for my, for my dad's t- foundation. And we did it at a, my on my stag do actually, we did it on my stag do. Um, and we raised, you know, a few hundred pounds then. And, I I did it last year, and I'm going to be doing it in a couple months' time. So if, you know, I don't know if you play golf, but if ever you want to come out, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll I'll host you here. You uh, don't you worry about it.
0: <laughs> I'll start practicing now, mate. I don't mind coming over. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Seriously, I'm
1: only a, I'm only a four hour drive from Vegas too. I know you like I know you like uh, a bit of that. So
0: Thank
1: you. he's got a tattoo on his arm. Right? <laughs> yeah, I don't mind a bit of Vegas. We actually saw each other in
0: Vegas one year, didn't we? <laughs>
1: Yeah, we did. We saw each other at your uh you it, it your brother's stag do, wasn't it? Back in yeah. oh, I can't believe it, but it was two thousand and seventeen and that's that's even more crazier that we saw each other because I wasn't even living in America at the time. I was that was I was on holiday too.
0: Was you really, yeah. Yeah. yeah I thought, like like same like, again, it's just small pl- a small world, isn't it? Like
1: You probably were on the plate next to me getting drunk. I just didn't even realise.
0: He's <laughs> <laughs> quite small there. you would not be able to see him. Oh, All right, <laughs> he chucked in a few small jokes in the last podcast. Oh, yeah, he, he, I told you it to leave didn't <laughs>
1: yeah. wow, the younger brother, he's, he's given it, isn't
0: he? Yeah, exactly. I He probably it.
1: lists more than you as well, Tom, doesn't
0: he? All right, don't be silly now. Don't be silly. May's gonna tell, tell him. Tell him what? <laughs> Mate, it's been uh, great talking to you though, mate Yeah, thanks for sharing, mate
1: I appreciate it Yeah, no, thank you for having me on, boys I really appreciate it And again, just thanks for, for doing this And for opening uh, For starting the conversation The really important conversation
0: Yeah, no, it's been amazing We're, like, I'm really happy We're both really happy that you reached out to, out to us, mate It's uh, Helps us out to us, doesn't it, mate? Yeah, same again, mate it's just, it's just nice to talk to someone Obviously, our, our circumstances are very different but grief, like you know, is you is yeah. With, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. and we can relate to a lot of stuff, even though it's very different, like we say. So, but yeah, mate, we'll definitely um, catch up soon, and I uh, uh, say I'll be all. I'll be out there in no no time playing golf yeah. with you.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Don't don't forget to let me know if you ever you're coming out. All right, I've got a place <laughs> for you to stay.
0: <laughs> right. Cheers. Nice thanks thanks very much, mate. All right, boys. Cheers. Very see you soon, mate. Have a good one. See ya.